It's not easy being sick. First of all, who likes to feel crappy? Secondly, it's not always easy to get a doctor's appointment. And when you do get an appointment, that visit can be extremely intimidating. There's no question we give up a lot when we trade our clothes in for a paper gown. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. So if it's not easy for us to get sick... What's it like for doctors themselves? On this morning's show, how did doctors react to being on the other side of the stethoscope? My guest this morning is Dr. Robert Klitzman. He's an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's also the author of When Doctors Become Patients. It's out now from Oxford University Press. Dr. Klitzman, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I must admit, I've never actually given much thought to the health of my own doctor. Is that common for patients? I think so. I think, in fact, people like to think that their doctor is immune, that even if they get sick, their doctor will always be there for them, will be healthy. Doctors wear white coats, and we assume that they are pure and they are beyond the sulliness of disease, etc. Do doctors themselves feel that way? I was surprised to hear how often doctors themselves felt that they wear a magic white coat that protects them from being ill, and this allows them to muck around people's bodies, uh, if you will, Uh, and yet, of course, that could work against them when they actually do get sick. I guess you have to have that thought process if you're going to work with ill people. You have to. You have to think that somehow, oh, this won't affect you, that even though people are coughing germs in your face all the time and you have blood on your hands from infected patients, that somehow you will be okay, that you can be there and help the patient and there won't be that much cost to you. There's an interesting story behind this book, When Doctors Become Patients. You are a doctor and you found yourself a patient after 9-11. My sister, unfortunately, died uh, September 11th. She worked at the World Trade Center for Cantor Fitzgerald. And when she died, I was grief-stricken, very upset, of course. Uh, But then I found uh, that I couldn't get out of bed for weeks, and I thought I had the flu. I just felt my body felt stiff. It just hurt to move. The only place that felt comfortable was in the nice, cool sheets of my bed. And I thought I had the flu. And friends would say, well, no, this is all part of depression. And I said, well, I know I'm sad about my sister, but I feel like something's wrong with my body. I feel like I just can't move. It just, I have aches and pains. You know, I have no energy. My eyes feel scratchy. It's the flu. And they said, no, 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 this is depression. And I had trained as a psychiatrist and was surprised to see the symptoms. And of course, in the end, I realized they were right and I got treatment and got better. But I was surprised that even though I had trained as a psychiatrist and had treated many patients with depression, that I'd failed to diagnose these symptoms in myself. Do you think you were in denial? Uh, It's hard to say. I think I failed to look at myself as if I was someone else. And I think that Uh, With depression, we know that people complain of feeling depressed, but there's also all kinds of bodily aches and pains. And in fact, in this country, most people with depression don't go to see a psychiatrist. They see their family doctor or internist, and they complain of this hurts and that hurts, and doctors run tests and find nothing wrong and then think the person's depressed and don't usually give treatment, and the patient becomes a complainy patient or a pain in the neck, et cetera, for the doctor, if you will. So I think there are symptoms that are part of depression that we're used to seeing in other people, but we don't look at them in ourselves. I think there's a way in which when you become a doctor, you separate yourself off from your experience as a person. And what I found is that when you do become a patient, you're forced to put these back together, and it's very, very hard. How did you go about getting treatment? 
uh, I finally realized that, yes, this was depression. I remember it took a few weeks for me to admit that. Uh, and uh, I think part of that, well, I should say, in answer to your earlier question, was denial. I mean, I didn't want to think of myself as being depressed. Uh, no one likes being depressed. And I think it's still stigmatized. And I was surprised to see how hard it is to admit that to oneself, uh, all of which, of course, is very interesting to then stand back and think about, as I did. Similarly, when I interviewed, I then interviewed 70 doctors who became ill with different kinds of problems, from uh, most with uh, more serious medical problems, cancer, heart disease, etc. And again and again, though, they told me the same thing, as I describe in the book, When Doctors Become Patients. Uh, they said they had some symptoms and ignored them or didn't think they were part of this illness because we're trying to look at disease in someone else. And, of course, part of that is the subjective nature of experience. So one doctor, for instance, said that uh, she she was a gastroenterologist. She specialized in stomach problems uh, and abdominal problems, and she and had treated many, many patients with stomach pain, abdominal pain. And then suddenly she had abdominal pain. And she said to me, I had no idea that pain was this bad, that when patients said pain, they meant this excruciating, all-consuming phenomenon that just takes over, and it is just so much beyond words. And she said, you know, I'd never realized that before. And so, again, I think as horrible as it is to become a patient, I think, as I describe in the book, this can be a point at which doctors can see what they didn't know before, and hopefully we could be better doctors as a result. Is the first instinct generally to self-diagnose? Yes. If you're a doctor and you have some expertise, Doctors think, well, I have the ability to prescribe, I have expertise, and who wants to admit that they're sick? Who wants to admit that this power and magic and this white coat, this powerful white coat we wear, that in fact we're just human underneath it and we can become sick? Who wants to admit that they have this power and magic and are now potentially about to lose it? So it's very difficult to give all that up. Uh, And so there's a lot of denial, uh, and a lot of it has to do with magical thinking is One doctor I describe in the book said when he became sick, he worked harder with his patients. He said, I thought I would be super doc, that if I worked harder and harder and helped more and more other patients, I would not get sick, I would not die. There's one doctor that you talk about in the book who actually had symptoms of a heart attack right before going into surgery, and he still performed the surgery. Yes, exactly right. He said he had symptoms. He thought, well, it's not really anything. And and he went ahead and and then had to stop the surgery. So it shows you how people don't process this the way we think they would. So it was astonishing to me the kind of denial that went on. How dangerous can this be for a doctor? We lay people are frequently told to get a second opinion. And now you have people who are diagnosing themselves, let alone not getting a second opinion. Right. Well, it could be very dangerous. And a lot of these doctors did not get good treatment. They waited too long. Some died. A number of these doctors tried treating themselves for a long time or they didn't seek treatment. To give you another example, there's another doctor who said he was driving home and he had some uh, pain in his left side and his back and thought, what could it be? And it went to his neck and He was wondering what it could be, and he went home, and he pulled out his medical textbook and looked up, and sure enough, heart disease, cardiac disease, a heart attack could present this way. So he got back in his car and drove to the hospital, and, you know, he should have just, you know, gone right to the hospital, called an ambulance, called 911, but he didn't want to give up control, which I think is part of the issue, too. Similarly, as I describe in the book, one doctor said that when he goes in for surgery, he takes his own pain meds in a little plastic baggie with him. So this way he wouldn't have to bother the nurses. 
So in the name of altruism, helping the nurses, he's in fact self-doctoring and one feels very badly for the nurses or doctors who have to take care of him who don't know when he's taking pain meds, when he's on opiates, if he starts to fall, get out of it and, and lose consciousness. Is that because he's taken a lot of pain meds on his own or is there a complication from the surgery? Pardon my ignorance, but is it legal for doctors to prescribe their own medications? There's legal and there's ethical. So doctors are legally uh, usually can prescribe their own medications if they're not uh, addictive medications. So a doctor can't prescribe his own painkillers or Valium. If a doctor has it at home, he could still bring it to the hospital. I mean, anyone who has it at home could bring it. But for other medicines, doctors often can. Or what happens, as I describe in the book, is doctors will prescribe for each other. So one doctor I interviewed said uh, that there's, quote, the guy who writes my scripts for me, the guy who writes my prescriptions for me. I said, is that your doctor? He said, no, it's just the guy who writes my scripts for me. <laughs> well, is that your doctor? No, it's a doctor I know, and I write his scripts, and he writes my scripts. So, uh, which is not exactly self-doctoring, but basically he says to this buddy of his, hey, write me a prescription for this, and the buddy will say to him, write me a prescription for that. There's no arguing and no one telling you what to do. Exactly. There's no one in charge except the doctor himself, and that's the problem. We, we don't make our own best doctors. We don't make our own best lawyers. When doctors do decide to see a doctor, how do they go about choosing a doctor? Some doctors uh, think that they will remain in control and just want someone who will go along with what they say. Some doctors feel they want the best person in the field. But what's interesting is, too, given the tension between bedside manner and more technical expertise, with the exception of a few surgical interventions that need particular high-tech skills, most of the doctors I interviewed said that they would prefer to have a little more uh, bedside manner from their doctor than that little extra bit of technical expertise. Did that surprise you? It did surprise me. Uh, and on the other hand, though, uh, what happened, a number of these doctors were incredibly honest and open, saying things I've never heard any doctor admit, though we all think it to ourselves, I should say, and the book's filled with such examples. But this one doctor said, who was an elderly guy, he said, you know, if I look at the doctors I've worked with over 30 years, 40 years, people I went to med school with, internship and residency with, most of us are about the same. I mean, occasionally, one out of 40, 50, 100, some guys a little better, a little quicker. But for the most part, most of us are about the same. So he felt that to go see a doctor who has a little more warmth is worth it. And what's interesting, though, is that goes in the face of a lot of what many of us think, that a do doctors are ranked. We look at every major city has a newspaper magazine that once a year lists the best doctors in, in Boston, New York, Atlanta, whatever the city is. Uh, and we believe in ranking doctors. We rank colleges. We rank everything, right? So we think that there's, you know, this great spectrum. And in fact, it gets quite complicated. Similarly, a lot of these doctors said that they went to someone who was reputed to be the best person in the field. They, these doctors have access to a lot of people. And they found that the person was not a good doctor, that even though they'd written a lot of papers and in the hallway, they were you know, the hail fellow well met to all their colleagues and how you doing, that in fact, when these doctors went as a patient to see these doctors professionally, they were surprised that the doctor would misdiagnose, would not do things right, did not have much bedside manner. So again, it's a question, a larger question about what is a reputation and how should we measure that, etc. There is one doctor in the book who went to a hospital outside of his area, and he decided to ask the head nurse 
who would you see at this hospital? Yes, I thought that was great. And I think in terms of take-home messages for patients, that's a very good one, that nurses actually, I think this doctor is very right, often have a lot of hands-on wisdom and can often uh, offer a lot of insights. Doctors do have to make the choice. Do I seek treatment in my own institution or do I go outside? And in some cases, do I go far outside to another town? If you go to be treated somewhere else at another institution, you will not be as much a VIP. No one's going to know who you are. On the other hand, no one's going to invade your privacy as much. So, in fact, one of the doctors I interviewed said that when he was admitted to the ward, his professor came up and visited him and said, oh, I just read through your whole chart and I see you're ready to go home in a day or so. Well, this doctor patient felt that his privacy had been violated. What if it said various things in the chart, his history of drug use or sexual activity, et cetera, that this uh, professor of his who has a power over him would then know about? Uh, and he felt very uncomfortable about that. So again, this is another kind of trade-off that these doctors face. I was surprised to read in your book that some doctors would actually peer in on the medical histories of their colleagues and then fluff it off by saying, oh, I'm just checking on him, seeing how he's doing. Yeah, wasn't that amazing? Again, in the name of honesty, they would be looking at their colleagues or co-workers' uh, medical lab results or medical histories or what was going on. Uh, and it's a big problem uh, because we often illness in the workplace is sort of an unstated thing. We may know that so-and-so has cancer, but uh, we're not supposed to know because we heard it as a rumor. And there's often a lot of unstated stuff that, that comes out that I think applies elsewhere beyond dealing with doctors and patients. And I think there's a lot of such things in our lives. And this book made me very aware of how those things play out. Uh, one of these doctors said that she would, would lie about her husband's illness. Her husband got infected with HIV from a needle stick. And she said she would talk about his having some other kind of medical problems. And she could tell that her friends who were doctors would know she was lying, but they'd let her keep her lie. What are some of the downsides of not telling? If you don't tell, uh, it's hard to get time off to see the doctor a lot. So some of these people, and a number of people in the book have HIV, among other medical problems, and they'd say, well, I see uh, my coworker who has breast cancer can go off and go to the lab and go to doctor's offices. I can't because I haven't told anyone. If you do tell, you could be stigmatized. You can be peripheralized. Some of these doctors, when they had cancer or whatever, were suddenly not sent patients by colleagues. They were not put on grants. They didn't get uh, referrals for patients. They didn't get put on papers. They weren't given fellows to work with them. So that's a reason uh, not to tell. There are issues that cut both ways, basically. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm joined this morning by the author of When Doctors Become Patients. Dr. Robert Klitzman is an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. For the doctors who allowed others to manage their care, were they micromanagers? Some of them were, yes. Uh, what's interesting is those who had expertise in their own disease tended to manage their disease more. So, for instance, if a pediatrician developed cancer, since he was used to dealing just with kids, he would generally defer and let the doctor be his doctor, or if a psychiatrist developed cancer. On the other hand, if an internist, let alone a cancer specialist, developed cancer, he was going to run the own, his own show. And then he did micromanage. Uh, many of these doctors had also treated other doctors who were patients. And they said that they see that doctors, when they become patients, often go from one doctor to the next. So they'll see one doctor, they'll see another doctor, and these doctors who are treating them say, I don't know if, if I'm his doctor 
or not? I mean, is he just doing serial consultations? And it, no one is going to chase the doctor down the hall and say, are you taking care of your cancer? Are you going to come back and see me? People assume, oh, he's the doctor. I don't want to challenge his opinion. And I should say throughout the book, what comes out is the implicit taboo against doctors criticizing each other. You mentioned second opinions earlier. And it turns out that a lot of these doctors found that it was a taboo to get a second opinion. One woman said, I got a second opinion, and my doctor had a hissy fit as if I was uh, his girlfriend who was breaking up with him. You know, what do you mean you're, you're leaving me? You're going to check, you know, go see someone else. Of course, for very serious things, often it's okay to get a second opinion. But these doctors had never really thought about that before, that there is this implicit taboo. And I think that it helps doctors as a community protect themselves against ridiculous malpractice suits where doctors are hesitant to testify against each other. But in this case, it could stand in the way of their own health. That is that doctors aren't going to say, hey, you know, why haven't you seen, uh, gotten treatment for yourself? People say, well, he's, I will think he knows what he's doing. I'm, if I say, what are you doing? He'll say, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm a doctor. And it becomes, in other words, the status could block criticism. Doctors also have the advantage in their medical knowledge that they, I'm sure, are able to pinpoint a mistake. And they may be perhaps afraid to tell another doctor. Yes, exactly. And in fact, uh, some of these doctors said that they would see, I should say that the experience of becoming a patient gave these doctors liberty to reflect and talk about a lot of issues. So a number of doctors said things like, you know, the nurses occasionally say to me, uh, you know, we like you, basically. Uh, you know, so Mrs. So-and-so down the hall, her doctor's been keeping her for weeks. Can't you say something to him and get her home? And the doctor's left thinking, well, what am I going to do? If I say to her doctor, gee, shouldn't you be sending Mrs. So-and-so home? He'll say, hey, don't you think I know what I'm doing? On the other hand, it may be best for her to go home. So it's hard to know about these things. And doctors do find that mistakes are made. They're very aware of how often there are mistakes made. Uh, they're given the wrong dose. The wrong thing is written down. Uh, it's just a human enterprise. And of course, science, we, from science, we expect perfection. We expect truth, not human error. And yet medicine, of course, is halfway between a science and an art. And that could be good on the one hand, because we're not all machines. We're not all exactly the same. On the other hand, it makes for a human process and there's error. Uh, and they become very aware of that. What's interesting about when doctors become patients is the fact that these doctors' eyes are opened more than you would ever imagine, even to little things in the hospital, like peeling paint. Yes, it was amazing to me because there's a lot of things patients complain about, and we just, as doctors, dismiss them as, oh, that's just the patient complaining. But these doctors said, I was amazed. It was a crack in the window and the Air, cold air was rushing in and someone had put a towel in the crack and it wasn't working or it took them, you know, a day to set up my telephone or a day to set up my television. And all these little things that as doctors we're taught to ignore, if not dismiss and look down on, in fact, are very important parts of the experience. And these doctors were amazed, amazed to see that. And again and again, they talked about these things as well as the whole bureaucratic structure. So these doctors said, you know, I never realized that just to deal with the insurance of a hospitalization is a full-time job. And if I'm a doctor and I have trouble with this stuff, what about my patients who don't have access and education in these things? A lot of doctors said that they had 
were surprised that when they got admitted to the hospital, for instance, they had set it up with their doctor and they were a doctor getting admitted. They thought it would go well. And instead, it took hours. They were left in the emergency room for 10 hours. Uh, it was still a problem. They'd get to the floor. No one saw them for 10 hours or five hours or whatever. And they said – and they were able to you know, page their doctors. They knew how the page system worked. They had the inside numbers. And they said, what must it be like for patients who aren't also doctors? It was amazing to them. And, of course, it's amazing, again, that, that doctors – we train doctors to have one point of view and not to realize that that point of view is just one of several possible points of view. So we know, for instance, from the arts, from films like uh, Rashomon by uh, Kurosawa, uh, books like uh, the, the, Sound of the, Fury, the Sound of the Fury by Faulkner, that you could tell the same story from different points of view, and the story is different. Yet these doctors don't, didn't realize that before. We don't teach that in med school. Again, we teach it the, that we have the truth, that there is a truth. And so these doctors were amazed to see the degree to which uh, their view of the experience of a doctor-patient interchange, when they view it from the point of view of a patient, is much different. Similarly, they talk about how they'll say, you know, I order routine tests all the time. Well, when it was for me, it was finding out if my liver cancer has come back, it's no longer routine. It's for the doctor, it's routine. It's not for the patient. Uh, and they hadn't realized, even in these terms, doctors refer to routine tests all the time, for instance. Or one doctor said that he had tested many patients for HIV and had always said, look, it's nothing to really worry about now. We have good treatment. People live as long as they would otherwise. And then he tested positive for HIV, and his doctor said to him, look, it's nothing to worry about. We have good treatment. People live as long as they would otherwise. Don't worry about it. And he said, don't worry about it. He said, I was incredibly worried, incredibly upset, and the doctor's comments did not help me emotionally. And yet I thought that those comments which I gave my patients, the same comments, were helpful emotionally. And so never before had these doctors even really thought about how emotionally effective what they're saying was to their patients and what the emotional response would be. You talk in the book about how statistics are presented, and one doctor says he was disturbed when his doctor told him that he had a 5% chance of dying. He said that he'd much rather have been told that he had a 95% chance of living. And he said to me, you know, I never thought there was a difference between those two things. I never, in my 30, 40 years of practicing, I never realized that, that I thought saying 5% chance of dying, 95% chance of living were the same. And so I think, again, we, 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 aren't, we don't train doctors to think how is the patient going to receive the information. Getting the right information is considered what's important without looking at the psychological and emotional context. And that's a problem. And that's why I think this book has, I think, good implications for improving doctor education and also, I think, for educating patients to be able to navigate these complex waters as best as possible. There was another doctor who I believe had to wait for treatment, and he said that he learned that any patient in waiting is a patient suffering. Yes, exactly. He never realized that before. He said to me, you know, I went to see my doctor, and, you know, I was kept waiting 40 minutes in the waiting room, and it drove me up the wall. And I said, well, have you ever kept patients waiting? And he said, well, I guess. I don't, you know, I don't even know. I never really thought about it before. And he now says to all patients, you know, I'm sorry to have kept you waiting. And again, it shows this disconnect, but also the things these doctors learned that they hadn't realized before in many ways. What's also surprising is that many doctors don't practice what they preach. They don't yes. eat well. They still smoke. 
Yeah, I was amazed. Uh, as you say, it, it, one doctor said, you know, I say to my patients that they should take their medication as if it was drinking water or breathing, take it all the time, and then I go home and I miss doses all the time. And it makes you wonder how effective the messages that, that doctors are giving patients are if these doctors themselves don't follow them. And I think we can be more effective. And sure enough, in the book, a lot of doctors arrive at more effective ways of communicating with their patients about these issues. So one doctor, for instance, said, I treat many patients with diabetes, and I've put many patients on a diabetic diet, which is you're extremely limited in what you can eat. If anyone knows anyone with diabetes, you know you're really restricted. He said, well, I thought I would just try a diabetic diet one day just to see what it's like, and I didn't make it to lunch. Uh, so it's very hard to sort of do these things, and yet this doctor then said, I realized, given that I miss doses of medication, that rather than uh, preach to patients, look, you have to take your medicine all the time, that's just the way it is, I now say, this doctor told me, look, uh, it's good you were able to do 80%. Let's try to work together to get you to 100%. What can we do? Which I think is a very different way of framing it. And in a number of ways, these doctors came up with ways of framing things that I think were more effective. What's also interesting is the fact that doctors who become ill are more likely to seek aggressive treatments. Yes, it was amazing to me. Uh, one doctor, for instance, as I describe in the book, said that he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, and he read that there had been a new treatment that had been tried on one patient on the West Coast, and he got in a plane and flew to the West Coast to be the second patient ever on this treatment. And I said, well, would you ever recommend that for your patients? He said, no, of course not. Well, why not? Well, because I can give informed consent. I can assess the risks and benefits my patients can't. And yet that made me think the fact that we often as doctors do make assumptions for our patients about how much risk they want to take, how much benefit they would want, what they're willing to risk, uh, what costs they're willing to undertake. And of course, we may not be right. And so one size fits all model doesn't work. Uh, maybe it's true that he could give informed consent and his patients can't, but I would bet that some patients probably could give informed consent or may want, if, if told about an experimental treatment, may want it. So again, we don't see these things as subjective. We think risks and benefits are objective, absolute things. And yet, of course, in anything, some people don't want to take airplanes. They're afraid of the risks. Other people are hang gliders. They're not afraid of the risks at all. So people, in fact, vary on these dimensions. And it's, as we move forward in medicine, it's important to be aware of these parameters and how they differ. Now, of course, all of the people in your book had one thing in common, and that is the fact that they are doctors, but not simply in profession. These people saw being a doctor as part of who they are as humans. Exactly. It's interesting how much, on the one hand, being a doctor is sort of just putting on a white coat, and so often we're asked to almost role-play the part. Sometimes they said they, they don't feel like being empathetic all the time. It's 3 in the morning, they've been up all night, and they have to play-act empathy or play-act sincerity. And I think that's correct. Sometimes we have to sort of play the part when we really don't feel like it. On the other hand, it becomes a deeply part of how they look at the world, how they see the world. A lot become workaholics, as I mentioned. And whereas we would think that when a doctor becomes sick, particularly if his immune system is compromised or goes down or is weakened, that the doctor would not want to be around much illness and would try to get a lot of rest. And yet instead, a lot of these doctors said it was too hard to give up this role. This role gave them self-esteem. I'm a doctor. It gave them something to do. It gave them a structure. It gave them an excuse not to have a social life sometimes. Or they'd say, uh, you know, my wife would say, let's go out with friends. I'd say, well, of my, my patients. And what she's going to say, let them drop dead? I mean, it's sort of this, it's this infallible excuse 
uh, to sort of do what I want to do in the world. What surprised you most about your research? There were spiritual issues, actually, that a number of these doctors said patients in the past would ask me to pray for them, and I'd kind of poo-poo it, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then I became a patient, and I realized just how important that was, and I'd never realized that before. And if I think back, never in medical school was spirituality once mentioned. It is just not taught at the med school I went to and med schools I've worked at, which are many very prestigious medical schools. Uh, And yet I think it plays an important role clearly in patients' lives, uh, which is not to say that every doctor has to believe the same thing as his or her patients, but to be aware that this is an important aspect of patients' lives. And I was surprised to see that these doctors had not realized that before. Again and again, spirituality came up as a topic. It's not something that I had gone into this project planning to speak to patients about, these doctor patients about, but it came up again and again. Uh, at the same time, it was very hard to assess. And there was uh, one doctor uh, who wanted to believe and couldn't, some doctors who said, no, I don't believe in anything, and yet did things that were very spiritual, and some doctors who I thought were very spiritual, even though they said they weren't. Uh, So, uh, again, it's a difficult area, but I think an important one. And I was surprised uh, that there was a film a number of years ago called The Doctor with William Hurt, in which he played a mean surgeon, and he became a patient, became this wonderfully loving guy. He was chauvinistic. He no longer was. And, of course, that's a Hollywood version. And what surprised me here is that the doctors I interviewed were good doctors to start with. They were caring people. As one woman I interviewed said, I always thought I was miscompassionate and listened. And not until becoming a patient did I realize how much I missed, how much I just didn't know about what it was like to be a patient. And so that even doctors who are not the William Hurt character, but good doctors to begin with, even they improve and see things that they had not seen before. The book is When Doctors Become Patients. Its author is Dr. Robert Klitzman. He's an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Klitzman, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. When Doctors Become Patients is out now from Oxford University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend. 